0: Hello, listeners. My name is Rifky, and I'm the producer of Parsha Lab at Aleph Beta. Before jumping into today's episode, I want to remind you that Passover is just around the corner, and there's a lot of great courses at alephbeta.org to help prepare for your Seder. My personal favorite is How to Read the Haggadah, whereby Foreman discusses the Haggadah's unique relevance to our lives today. Check it out. And now, please enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of
1: Lab. I am Emu Shalev. I am David Foreman. And
0: together we are Emu and Rabbi (laughs) Foreman.
1: Emu, sometimes your profundity shocks and amazes me.
0: I try. I I always wanted to be part of like a superhero team. So I was trying something out there. Okay, so Rabbi Foreman. Sefer Vayikra is a difficult book, to say the least. And I think one of the reasons it's such a difficult book is because there's very little story. There's very little narrative. Um, This is something we talked about way back in Parshat Mishpatim, but up until uh, really the book of Vayikra, you have lots of stories. You've got the stories of Beratius and the families of Avraham and Yitzhak and Yaakov and they go down to Egypt and then slavery and the Exodus, the great encounter with God at Har Sinai. And then you get into laws. You get into laws and Mishpatim, you get into the, the Mishkan, and we, we got through that. But now we have a whole book full of laws. A lot of people don't pay attention too closely to these parshiot. They're hard to relate to. They wake up again in Bamidbar, in the stories of the desert. But, Rabbi Foreman, in the Parsha experiment that I did with David Block, we tried to solve some of those difficulties in Vayikra by hunting for the overall storyline. And what I wanted to do with you is do sort of a Parsha experiment experiment show you what we noticed, and see what that provokes for you. How do you feel about that?
1: So I feel good about that. I always love meta stuff, and this feels very, very meta. Basically, if I understand you correctly, you're going to be giving me some of your beginnings of your thinking. We'll sort of see where it goes, and I wonder if we'll end up in similar places, but time will tell. So go ahead, shoot.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. So this is sort of how David and I did it. We would open up the Parsha, uh, which if you want to join me at home you can do that by opening up Leviticus 1 uh verse 1 and we would we would read and see okay what's going on in this chapter. So let me read with you. So God called out to Moshe, God spoke to Moshe uh from the tent of meeting, from the Ohel Moed saying um, and then what ends up in this chapter is a long list of Korbanot, of sacrifices. I actually don't want to focus on the list of sacrifices. I want to ask the classic Parsha experiment question. How is this section, this God calling to Moshe from the Ohel Moed, connected to the very last story, the the, the chapter that precedes it, which is the last chapter of Exodus?
1: Okay, yeah. So I'm looking here at Exodus 40. There's this cloud descending on the Ohel Moed, on the tent of meeting or the, the Mishkan. And the idea of that cloud is that here's this uh, structure that people have built. But until God actually comes and sort of takes up resonance in the structure, it's only sticks and stones. There's nothing special about it. God is coming in this cloud. Of course, if we go back even earlier in Exodus, the cloud reminds us of the cloud that God descended upon Harsinai, the mountain itself. It says, Vayered Hashem Anan, the God cleaned out the cloud. And now the cloud seems to be resting not just on this uh, majestic. Uh, setting of uh, of God's creation, namely a mountain, but it's now resting on a humble sort of structure created by man, uh, which is the thing at the bottom of the mountain. The tent of meeting and the cloud is now coming all the way down. Ultimately, so to speak, the cloud is going to take up residence, as it were between the two kruvim of the ark but this is sort of the journey of the cloud coming down the glory of god fills the mishkan and then verse 35 always struck me as as very instructive here the moshe actually couldn't come into the Oalmoid because of the anan there that god was there and the holiness of god's presence was so intense that it did not allow room for a human being for even moses and uh, and that's really the very last verse of exodus that the kol beit yisrael that the the this anan the cloud of god would be upon the mishkan by day it would take the form of a pillar of fire by night in the front of the eyes of all of israel and then that leads you into vayikra um, where it seems to me, if you sort of ask that great partial experiment connection, which is how does Leviticus connect to Exodus, to me the the piece that seems to connect it is the idea of Oam Moed, is the idea of the tent of meeting, and specifically this question of where where is Waldo almost? Where is Moshe? Because if you look at the end of Exodus, Moshe outside the tent of meeting, and the beginning of Vayikra is, is sort of what happens after that.
0: Yeah, so so I think that you definitely notice something, you know, very clear that I think a lot of commentators pick up on as well, which is that the cloud comes and descends upon the Mishkan right after they finish building it, which we've been focusing on the last few weeks. The glory of God is so is so present that Moshe can't even enter, and then the very next story is about Moshe's entrance into into the Mishkan, and so that is, that's a very clear connection, I think. But I want to do something a little bit more ambitious, actually, and even read some of the verses that you you skipped uh, here at the end, um, and and see what that might tell us, not just about the connection between the very last chapter of Shemot and the first chapter of Vayikra, but whether or not that last chapter of Shemot tells us something about how to read the entire book of Vayikra, and let me show you what I mean. So you pointed out right there in in Exodus 40, Verse 34, that the, the cloud covered Yoel Moed, and in the next verse, Moshe can't enter. But in verses 36 and 37, you get something very curious. When the cloud went up from above the Mishkan, Then Israel would journey. And then the next verse, When the, the cloud did not go up, They would stay still until the cloud would eventually go up again. And then it basically says that this is, this is the way Israel Israel would travel through the desert in their journeys. There would be a cloud during the day, and there would be fire at night in all of their journeys, which is kind of curious. It's telling us a story of not just of how the cloud would settle on the Ohel Moed, on the Mishkan. It's telling us also about the function of that cloud somehow in signaling Israel's journeying. And so you would expect that in the next chapter, or maybe not in the very next chapter, but in the next chapters, we'll hear about how the cloud went up and the journey that Neh took throughout the desert. Why is it telling us about how they would journey right now? And it's especially curious, considering the fact that if you read the entire book of Leviticus, you'll notice something interesting. They never journey. They're staying in one place for the entire book of Vayikra. And in fact. One of the very last psukim in Vayikra, in in chapter twenty-six, verse forty-six. This is the last verse of the penultimate chapter of Vayikra, seemingly summarizing the entire book. Says, asher Hashem Beno u'vein b'nei Yisrael Sinai These, this entire book of Leviticus, are the statutes, the ordinances, the laws that God gave between Him and the people of Israel. Where? Behar Sinai Moshe. At Har Sinai. We were at Har Sinai all the way back in Exodus, and you're still at Har Sinai at the very end of Leviticus. And yet we're hearing about how the cloud would go up uh, and down to signal their journeys, but they didn't take any journeys. Let me make this a little bit more curious before I turn it over to you for analysis. And I want you to come with me into the book of Numbers. I'm going to take you into
1: so we got these verses in chapter 9 that over and over and over again tell us about these rules of how the Israelites would travel. And it and it really comes back and echoes this verses that you've pointed out to us here in Exodus 40, where you uh, hear in one verse he, this notion of that when the cloud would go up, they would travel. When it would go down, they would stop. And then over and over again, you get that theme pounded into you. In Parshat Baalotcha, when the people are really ready to journey, the cloud going up and the cloud going down was going to teach Israel how to go. And um, it's almost like there's this little sandwich. Uh, with two pieces of bread. And and one piece of bread is these verses here at the end of Exodus Exodus 40, which is right before Vayikra. And the other piece of bread is after all of this Mishkan stuff, where you again come in and it's like, okay, so let's talk about the journeys. And we'll talk about the cloud. We'll talk about how the cloud's going to lift up and they'll be ready to go. And they're on their way to Israel. Yeah,
0: great. That's exactly what what I thought as well, um, which is that they're these uh, pieces of the sandwich or, or bookends, it, it seems to be that they're actually like breadcrumbs. There, <laughs> a lot of bread analogies. They're they're actually signaling to you where the storyline is actually hitting a big pause button, right? There is a storyline. So so we, we were at Har Sinai, and then we're supposed to keep journeying. And the Torah is telling you how the journeying would happen. Um, but before it continues to tell you about the journey, and we're going to get to the journey in, oh, I don't know, 37 perakim from now. It's telling you a diversion. We're going to take a diversion um, and talk to you about a whole bunch of laws. I think when the Torah does that, when the Torah uh, doesn't tell you the next plot point, um, and there are are a few plot points in Vayikra, by the way. I shouldn't say it's all laws, uh, although it's mostly laws. I think what the Torah is trying to actually show you is that while it may not be plot points, this section is thematically related to what comes before it. Uh, and maybe even what comes after it. Where Can the I just actually begin... jump in
1: here and, and, yeah, yeah. and interrupt you? Because I think if I understand you correctly, you're trying to make the point that when... The Torah does this when there's a sort of sandwich. So the, the filling in the sandwich has got to be related to the two pieces of bread on the outside. So there's yes. something about these intervening chapters, which essentially are the entire old book of Leviticus, which seems connected. And
0: the first nine chapters, and the first nine chapters,
1: of, chapters of, of, of Bamidbar, which seem connected to these themes of of the bread, which gets back to what exactly is the theme of the bread the notion of the travels, specifically the travels of the cloud. So as you were just saying that, something struck me that the description of the journeys of the people, specifically with the the motion of the cloud, if I take you into, say, verse 36, if you look at that language, when the anan goes up from the mishkan, that is when the people travel, and then again, that word that verb bahalot is going to come back at the very next verse. the imloya aleha anan, but if the anan does not go up, then they would not travel right? If you take that idea of going up and take that right into the stuff in the middle of the sandwich, the beginning of Ayikra, the loss of the offerings, and guess what the first offering is. Chapter 1, verse 3, Im ola min If the korban is in fact an ola, well, it just so happens that the ola korban kar- is an offering whose name means a go-upness korban, right? Hmm. You know, Taking your theory a little further, um, is there some sort of stream of consciousness connection between the notion of an ola offering and the ascension of the cloud uh, that would signal these travels?
0: That's really interesting. I definitely did not notice that, but it, it's uh, it seems like a really really interesting connection that I I I, uh, I would I would want to uh, think more about why why that might be.
1: Yeah. I mean, I never noticed it either. I just, I think it's a, it's a fascinating question. Um, Is there a connection between the Ola, you know, and the cloud?
0: So maybe let's come back to it because, so the place that I went with it actually relates to what you started talking about way back in the beginning of this podcast episode. (laughs) To me, I, I was sort of seeing Sefer Vayikra as a consequence of the major story that happens beforehand, which is you talked about clouds, right? So there was a cloud on top of a mountain. And that, that's great. And they got some laws. But now the cloud is on top of a man-made structure, as you said. It's on top of the Ohel Moed. And that Ohel Moed is in the midst of the camp. So I wondered if to some extent the cloud descending onto the Ohel Moed um, as being the story that precedes Sefer Vayikra, if that sort of demands a whole new set of laws, meaning it, it's sort of like it changes the reality structure. God is now in the midst of the camp and and we need to contend with that reality there's going to be a whole set of rules for how to live together with god in the midst of the camp and before we can continue our journey together we need to know how to how to live together we need to know how to to get along with god and i actually think that you know sefer bayikra a lot of people think it's a book of sacrifices it's it's really not there are plenty of sacrifices in this book but there are a lot of laws about tomah Purity, ritual purity that you need to have now that you're in the midst of the camp. And a lot of the descriptions about Toma and Tara in this book are about how God's presence can't suffer impurity. It's really described in the context of we live together with God. And a huge section of the book is about Kedusha, about holiness. So it's not just that we can't be impure or we need to be pure, we also need to be holy. And that's also described in terms of living together with God. And then that holiness uh we 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 hear about holidays right and that word holidays right is holy days so it's not just holiness in your personality it's not holiness in, in your actions it's also there are certain holy appointed times in Wadim. um and then there is holiness right in years in Shemitah and yovel and holiness in the land in shmita and yovel so it it really extends further so the the idea that that we were grappling with in parsha experiment was the idea that Somehow, in order to live together with God, in order to continue to journey together with God, you're going to need to know how to how to do that. You need some laws to guide you.
1: So you're, what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is the end of Exodus sets the stage for a new reality. The new reality, in a way, if you take the central ideas of the second half of Exodus, they would probably add up to central idea number one, Revelation. Central idea number two, the construction of the tabernacle, common denominator between them. God appears and is resident upon the mountain in Revelation, and in the tabernacle, God takes up residence among the people. So the idea of God being a part of us is not just a momentary flash in the pan at Revelation, then God goes home which is to say, it's not so much that the Anun comes down upon the mountain and then goes up and departs, but that that process of the Anun going up and down and departing is a constant process that reenacts itself in the Mishkan. And so there's a constancy to God's presence. God's always with us, departs briefly to allow us to leave and to go, but then comes back, in which case we stop. And that that requires some laws because the laws require us to be with God in a certain kind of way. And maybe just to pick up on that theme just a little bit, you know, getting back to that idea of Ola, isn't it interesting, Emu, that if, if the Anan, you know, from the Mishkan is kind of an echo of the cloud, the Anan from Sinai, isn't it interesting that when the cloud descends, no one moves? And when the cloud goes up, they do move. What does that say to you? Especially in light of the of Sinai.
0: Well, the way I always understood it is the, the cloud is God's presence. Right. So when the cloud when God is present, you you hang out with him.
1: If you think about it, isn't that interesting? Because if somebody would say to you, What were the Israelites trying to do in the desert? So you'd say they were trying to get to Israel. Well, that's one thing they were trying to do. But it's interesting that whenever the cloud descended, they weren't trying to get to the land of Israel. They were just hanging out. There was like this overriding imperative that when the cloud descends, you don't move. Why? Mm -hmm. Because when God's there, it's not about where you're going. It's about where you are. And then isn't it fascinating that if you see these laws in the way you're seeing them, the middle of the sandwich is about how do we exist with God? How do we be with God? Right? And, And forget where we're going. What are the ground rules for maintaining this relationship when you and I are in the same place together? And then we have these laws of these offerings. Isn't it interesting that the offering, which is described as a carbon, the very first of those offerings is an ola. There's like an irony here. Normally in the cloud, when the cloud would be ola and would go up, everyone would leave and then you would stop thinking about being with God. It was just time to journey. But when the cloud would descend, that's when you would connect with God. But when the cloud would descend, how would these laws sort of guide you in terms of being with God? Well, there was this Ola that you could bring, a free will offering that just goes up to God. And the irony is, is that when the cloud is not going up, when the cloud is down, and all you want to do is be with God, that's the moment where instead of you moving, you take motion in the form of this animal which is almost representative of you and it's a carbon, and carbon describes a certain kind of moving towards right and there's a moving right, that, towards the, almost the vertical of horizontally Karban means to come near to draw near almost as if there's this horizontal motion where I draw near and this vertical motion which is ola I draw up and I'm concentrating movement in something that's not me I'm with God And somehow, whatever movement is going on in my life, I'm trying to dedicate that to the service of being with God, rather than the service of trying to actually get somewhere.
0: So I I like where you're going with this. Um, It reminds me of a few things. Number one is that there's, throughout Vayikra, there are a few instances of man-made clouds, terrestrial man, reaching upward, of creating a cloud that goes upward. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost mirroring God's heavenly cloud, which comes downward towards the earth, right? So there's the Ola, Korban, which starts off sefer VaYikra, where we are, I guess, maybe even reaching out to God by creating this pillar of smoke that goes upward. There's also at the very center of VaYikra is Achrimot, like right? the, the service of the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur, where we bring the cloud of Ketoret, literally described as Anan HaKetoret, um, mm-hmm. a cloud, a terrestrial cloud that goes upward and meets the heavenly cloud that descended from the heavens uh, and rests above the the ark. Uh, so there's the closeness of cloud meeting cloud, which which is at the very center of this book of Ayikra, which sounds like you're sort of suggesting begins uh, at the very beginning of Ayikra in the form of Korban Ola
1: Yeah, uh, you know, right sort of in the middle of the book, You've got this cloud, which is fascinating because if you think about the the ends of the book as you're defining them now, it's about clouds. Is that, how cool is that? Right? In other words, it's about the cloud of God coming down into Sinai at the very end of Exodus, leading into Leviticus. Then it's about these clouds in motion in Parshat Balotcha in, in Numbers 9. And right there in the middle of Leviticus, you have cloud meets cloud, where a human being really doesn't want to go anywhere. On Yom Kippra, you're not moving, you're just, you're just there. And the way a human being expresses that desire to move, to be with God, is when cloud meets cloud, and literally where one cloud goes up and there's that language of Ola again. And you get the, the beginnings of that at the beginning of Vayikra, where you have a, another kind of Ola, but it's not yet a cloud. It's an offering, which is an also and perhaps some kind of attempt to make contact uh, with the divine.
0: I think that's that's really interesting. I'll, I'll just say one more thing that it reminded me of this idea of when God is there, you don't want to go anywhere, um, and that so long as you consider the journey, it's difficult for you to be with God. And maybe I'm ruining Parsha Lab for Parshas uh, Bamidbar and Naso, but those first nine chapters of uh, of Bamidbar and their connection to Vayikra can now maybe understood, you know, according to your theory, because those first nine chapters describe the way in which Israel would journey and the way in which they would encamp. If you don't read them closely, you know, the way I always pictured um, the, the journeys in the desert and the way in which the tribes would travel would be in a straight line, right? That would be the normal way of thinking of, of the nation of Israel traveling. But that's actually not how they traveled. And it's certainly not how they encamped. The way they encamped is they encamped around the Oha Moed. They camped around the cloud of glory. They specifically put God at the center of their camp. And mm-hmm. even in their journey, they journeyed in that box-like formation. They didn't journey in a straight line. Perhaps uh, that that is because even in their journeys, they were doing their best not to journey or, or they were sort of showing their desire to be at rest once again uh, and be with God at the center of their camp and not lose their structure or their integrity uh, as as a camp, but to me, if that if that's if that's true, if that if that all works, it makes sense as to why those first nine chapters are a part of this bookend uh, system of sort of the cloud going up and the cloud going down. Why why uh, you get that smushed and sandwiched in there in between these two pieces of bread?
1: That is interesting. Let me just uh, close out, if I can, kind of look at some of the the overall themes of Leviticus. Uh, with one more meditation on the cloud. If you think of a cloud, it's a kind of interesting direction finder, isn't it, for people? And if you think about us being led by a cloud as a symbol of the divine presence, uh, who gets led by a cloud? A cloud isn't, you wouldn't think of a cloud as a GPS. A cloud is such a strange thing. And if you think about who relates to clouds, and it, it just brings me back at least to what we argued was a central metaphor of how God relates to Israel. Which is, who are we going back into Parshat Yitro and going back into earlier and in right? It's birds again. We're the bird. Right? It's about this this mother bird. It's about this God who comes and and sees himself as the eagle right, that flies above the clouds, as it were, flies in the clouds, and that takes care of this other kind of bird, this gozel, and nurtures it and takes care of it. And, and there's that metaphor that God is this great predator and with great power, but he takes care of this little wounded bird. Um, maybe even from a different species, this gozel, which is us. And therefore, what better direction finder could there be than a cloud who takes direction from a cloud but a bird? And we're being led by this cloud, but and yet there's times when the cloud descends and all you want it to be is be nestled in the cloud and hang out with the eagle. And it's not about where the eagle takes you, which ultimately is the land of Israel, but it's about the ability to just be in the cloud with the eagle.
0: Very nice. Or by format, I just want to close out by suggesting sort of what what these ideas mean to me. Yep. For me, the context is really important in understanding the overall storyline and understanding Safer Vayikra's relationship with the overall storyline, because it suggests that Vayikra isn't like this appendix. It's not some like, here are a list of laws that you should close your eyes and not pay attention to until we get some more meaty plot points. It seems to be, you know, its place at the center of the very five books of Moses and its themes of Korban, which uh, the idea of closeness and the idea of the cloud at the center of the camp and 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 the consequences of living together with God. All of that seemed to be kind of the mission statement of, of the people of Israel, the core value that we have and, and what we're all about, which is closeness with God, living together with God. It causes you to sit up at the edge of your seat and maybe pay a little bit closer attention to the laws and values present in Sefer Veikra, what is Sefer Vayikra trying to tell us about how we live together with God? Um, so I can't say I know all the answers quite yet, but I do know that the context uh, makes it really interesting and demands a lot of focus on what Sefer Vayikra is about.
1: Sure. And I think about living together with anybody, right? That there's uh, a certain kind of curtailing of individual freedom that goes along with the choice to be together with somebody. And the greatest example of that is marriage, Uh, but any sort of family life or indeed any sort of communal life is part of that. And if you think about what it means to be part of a civic society with others, it means to live together with them Uh, And it's not just about me being the Wild West cowboy and I can do whatever I want, but there are uh, constraints upon my individual freedom that I willingly undertake because of my desire to be together with others. And um, that that is a wonderful possibility, that ability to voluntarily restrain myself and my desires and everything I might want to do because of the imperative of being together with another God's asking that of us no less with our relationship with him. One of the particular things about Vayikra is the fact that so little of it makes sense to the human mind. These restrictions are about issues of Kodesh and Chol and Tara and Tuma and holiness and purity and impurity, which are fundamentally not human concepts. They're fundamentally divine concepts. But that's okay because what you're doing is you're adjusting to living with God, who is not human. And part of adjusting to living with another is to be sensitive to what it's like for them, adhering to laws that may not make sense to them to you, but are the ways that you accommodate a divine being in your presence.
0: Beautiful. Okay, Rabbi Foreman, thank you so much for potting with me this week. If you haven't seen Rabbi Foreman's amazing videos on Saber Vayikura, you absolutely should check them out. There's an incredibly good one on sacrifices, actually getting into uh, the Ola, the Shlamim, and the Chatas, and and trying to understand what those Korbanot are and how they might have uh, relevance for us spiritually today. Check them out. I know that you will be really glad you did. And make sure to share this, send us your comments, uh, and all the good things that one does after a podcast. We're really glad that you're here, and thanks for listening.